This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It is Monday, time for our Zoomer Squad and our first chance to unpack the Ford government's measures to supposedly stabilize the health care system. We know that probably the biggest bottleneck is caused by patients who no longer need to be in a hospital but don't have a suitable nursing home place. There are about 1,200 such patients in acute care beds on any given day. The government is changing the law to allow hospitals to temporarily, they say, send these patients to homes they don't want to go to. But the government says they won't actually force people. So listen to this exchange at Queen's Park question period between NDP MPP uh, Wayne Gates and long-term care minister Paul Calandra. Hospital discharge planners have always been allowed to have conversations with patients. However, the new regulations give them power to access a patient without consent, to send their personal information to a private care home without their consent, to discharge them from the hospital and admit them into a long-term care facility without their consent. Then he looked at the bill, he would have seen right in the explanatory note that in fact uh, consent will still be required. If he went a little bit further into Bill 60, uh, uh, subsection 60-7, uh, he would see again that consent is still required. Well, of course, we have made numerous requests to speak to Minister Calandra. Uh, and my big question is, why change the law if they could do that already and uh, they need consent? Maybe he thinks my questions will be tougher than the opposition's. But let's bring in the Zoomer squad for their take. And we'll also get to the burning question of whether Lisa Laflamme's decision to go gray led to her ouster. I would like to welcome Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, Bill Van Gorder, chief operating officer and chief policy officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer of CARP. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hey, Libby. Hi, Libby. David, uh, we were chatting before we went to air your take on this change to the treatment of ALC, alternate level of care patients in hospital beds. I don't understand. You pointed out to me before we went on the air. I don't understand why it needs a regulation if they were having these conversations all along. I do know that when you go on a waiting list, you have picked five long-term care homes that you're waiting for. You've listed them one, two, three, four, five. That's your list. Um, if you're in a hospital, there's 12, put in its proportion, there's 1,200 people uh, in alternate care beds in the hospital waiting at any given moment. They're proposing to reduce that to about 900 or 300 people. 250 doesn't seem that huge a number to talk to amicably and maybe go to home that was number six on your list that isn't that far away. I really don't think there's much chance of them being able to force somebody in Toronto to move to a long-term care home in, in Sudbury. But maybe you're in Oakville and you'll, 
you'd rather be in a home in Mississauga than in a hospital bed. It doesn't seem that uh, nefarious to me, but uh, I don't know why they need regulations. Well, David, may I remind you that at the height of COVID, they were doing this certainly with hospital patients. They were dispatching them really, really far. So it's not like it's never happened. And again, I, I don't understand... Uh, what is different here, Bill? Do you have a view? Well, I certainly think this—you uh, know—this is a real conundrum for the people who want change now in what the government's doing in terms of the way it's treating our older citizens in uh, hospitals and in long-term care. You know, the on the pro side, it's action now with immediate results. They're actually doing something and not just planning something that's going to happen for years. Uh, from now the the problem though is once again it's not uh, it's it's system centered and not patient centered entirely looking at the convenience of the uh, system so in the case of the the regulations they've always played fast and loose with uh, with regulations you recall during uh, the time you just mentioned with with covid although there were regulations the long term care homes and hospitals still had uh, could make uh, could make decisions that were outside of the uh, regulations also uh, you know with when you're when you're dealing with the system, when an, especially an older person and has someone like a, like a discharge coordinator or doctors tell them that they should do something, there's a real hesitancy to go against the uh, against the recommendation. So this is uh, uh, you know it's very prescriptive and not keeping in mind what's really the best uh, uh, in, in the best uh, for the patient and the and the wishes of the patient and their family. Peter, let me just go over some of the comments I've heard about from people that I respect a great deal. Uh, last week, w- w- just when this came down, and granted, probably before they saw regulations, both Samir Sinha and Donna Duncan, who runs the Association for For-Profit Long-Term Care, were very hesitant about the way this treated our elders about whether it would violate their basic rights. And on the other side of it, Lisa Raitt, who is a conservative, but who has a lot of experience with her husband, who suffers with dementia, said, on the other hand, a lot of these people have dementia and they are not well cared for in a hospital. Yeah. Um, I, I have experience with that. Uh, anyone who's looked after an elderly person will have experience of, um, you know, them being admitted to hospital, their issue clearing up, and then they're in hospital because there's nowhere to go. Um, they're not well enough to go home. They haven't got into a long-term care home. You know, they don't need the rehab hospital. So they're they're sort of in limbo, and they do take up a lot of beds, and it's not the greatest environment you know um you know uh people are coming in and out of the rooms all the time alarms are going off uh you know just general the general chaos of a hospital isn't great for someone who doesn't need to be there and so in on in one hand you can see yes let's get them to a better place um out of that hospital as soon as possible and into somewhere that's more reasonably um sane you know but but the the flip side is it's um you know 
you know, can we force them in? And and I think this legislation, although it says consent, I I think that's what the situation is. If it's an emergency, if beds need to be freed up, um, I think um, consent, like, I, I think it's just going to be a matter of moving the patient out regardless. Yeah. And and I think there's this uh, possible badgering element, you Absolutely. know, a Absolutely. family or a patient might say no, but, you know, by the third time you're getting badgered, exactly. and then you become afraid that you're not even going to get the care you normally exactly. receive in the hospital. And, and the question is whether the social worker is on your side or the hospital side, you know, and uh, I, I think... You know, they they come out and they give you options, but I I think basically it's okay. You know, clear out of that bed, and here's your only option. You know, so um, yeah, and, and, it, it it certainly cuts both ways, Libby. And uh, Bill, people have all also pointed out that uh, you should beware, uh, be wary of the word temporary. You know, these oh. moves are not easy, and once you get somewhere, really. Um, are are you going to be moved out if your first choice suddenly comes available? A lot of people kind of doubt that. Well, that and that's a really good point. Not only do is is it uh, questionable whether or not that move will be made, uh, and where, even if it is, you know, multiple moving of older patients. We know that that in terms of. Uh, of, of, of an older person's mental health, one of the most stressful things is moving the place where they where they're comfortable to somewhere Actually else. Actually, for anybody. They, <laughs> yeah, well, that, it's probably that's that's probably uh, probably quite true. But it does, you know, there are certainly uh, that kind of uh, effect on on people. So so saying you're going to bounce them around from one to another till it becomes until uh, till something they want becomes available isn't a good suggestion uh, either. And remember, uh, no matter where our our older citizens are, much of the care that's provided, in fact, some uh, research shows is up to 80% of the actual care that people get when they're either in hospital or long-term care is provided by family and friends exactly. who are coming into the hospital and doing those extra things. And even if you move somebody 50 kilometers, which doesn't seem like a, a lot on, on, on paper, uh, away from those people, they're going to lose all of that uh, all of that uh, support and care so it's a it's a it's not a good way to treat uh, older people in hospitals or in long-term care okay and uh, guys you know maybe you will have more pull with the minister of long-term care than than we do uh, he certainly used to be happy to talk to us when <laughs> when he was in other jobs and certainly in opposition. Uh, but I I would really like to find out if the things he's saying is the case. Why why did we need this? Well, you but, can always, first of all, you can always refute what they're saying. By, so I don't care what the law is. They're never going to do that. They are going to browbeat people. They are going to badger people. Uh, that's a prediction that, uh, you know. But I just would remind everybody, we're talking about 1,200 people and they think they can move 300 of them, 250. I'm looking at a long-term care application from a colleague. Uh, 27 homes are on the list that he could have chosen for his uh, parent, and he gets, he gets to choose five, one, two, three, four, five, and the parent is waiting to get in. It happens to be waiting at home, not in a hospital. That means there's 22 others that are much closer than 50 kilometers away. They may only be a few kilometers away. So the 
the low-hanging fruit here is can you find 300 people out of 1,200 people whose sixth choice or seventh choice or eighth choice when they selected where they wanted to be is near enough that it would not be onerous. Now, will you do that? Maybe not. Maybe they'll mess the whole thing up. Could you do that? It doesn't seem to me to be that irrational to think that they could find better care for 300 people not that far away if they have that dialogue. Um, I'm not convinced on the face of it is that monstrous could they mess it up for sure but they could also it could also work again i still have the same question if that's what they wanted to do why do they need need a regulation and a law um which which gives them more power than what they say sure so that's that's my question and i remain open a couple of other things you know uh peter tabbins got up and talked about a lack of utilization in OR and in scans, and obviously that's got to be a staffing problem, right? You know, somebody has to operate the machines. Yeah, that's one of the things where I think that is being forgotten here is this, this, the issue is not as much available beds as it's available staff to give the care wherever uh, people are. And And that's not being addressed at all by by dealing with 300 patients out of the uh, uh, thousands that are that are in need of, of some kind of special uh, care. Uh, it was reported in the media that uh, uh, 6,500 beds are, are available uh, across the whole province in long-term care, and we're only moving 300. Uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. Maybe it makes good news a good soundbite, uh, but it's not going to solve the problem. Well, it might alleviate the problem. I mean, if it is on, um, if it is actually as they report it. But as to the other stuff, I mean, um, you know, it, it's like you can't snap your fingers and find these snap these staff people. They've put in a few measures, and they're getting a lot of criticism. Uh, and again, I keep saying this: I don't understand why they don't just repeal Bill One Twenty Four, so uh, so people can stop complaining about it. Because they aren't going to settle for one percent. No, no, that's for sure. <laughs> not. No. Uh, so I, I mean, again, some of, uh, of course, the stuff is incomprehensible, and and um, we don't get answers. And then there's this also, and this I want to ask some hospital CEOs, and sometimes they actually answer questions. Uh, it, uh, you know, this whole business about agency nurses and the huge costs, and we learned last week from Michael Warner that some of these agencies have almost doubled their fees because they can't. Hospitals have power, and they join together to do all kinds of purchasing. Why don't they just say, this is the cap, we're not paying more? I don't get that. Because it makes well, too much if sense. if it's a supply and demand <laughs> issue, then I, I guess they don't have a choice, right? Like, oh, no, I think yeah. they have a choice. It's like, you know, we all have private uh, supplemental insurance here at work, right? You want to go to the chiropractor? Well, the insurance company, even if you're within your threshold of 500 bucks a year, they'll say, we're not paying more than 65 bucks a visit. If you want to go to somebody who charges more, you'll pay the difference. I mean, the hospitals can say, we're not paying more than X dollars an hour for an agency nurse. And where will all those agencies get work if all the hospitals say that? 
But it's who blinks first, because I don't want to be the hospital that suddenly doesn't have any nurses. Well, if they all say it, right? I mean, I... But I don't even I, know, if, can, they, can they legally say that? Is that like... Uh, why not? Restraint of trade I, or something, I, and some anti-competition which, bill or something? Which agents... No, it's like your insurance company can say it, Right. If your insurance company can say, I'm not paying more than this. But my insurance company can't get together with 10 other insurance companies. And I co think Collectively, legally, I don't think. No, they, the hospitals purchase all kinds of stuff together. Yeah. And it's also a question, which agency will blink True. first? True. Right? Is, and the result of something like that, well... The chiropractor in Rosedale isn't lowering, lowering his rates. He doesn't have to. But the chiropractor down the street here is within the insurance rates. Right. I mean, again, I look forward to asking a hospital <laughs> CEO about that. Because some of these things, they, you know, they just look uh, straightforward. But you know what? Um, honestly, when you're dealing with taxpayers' money and not your own money, sometimes, I don't know. And when there's no consequence for failure. Exactly. When there is no consequence for failure. Um, Peter, do you have a view of any of that stuff? Well, um, you know, it, this is something that could have been in the legislation as well, right? Like, th this is like uh, capping uh, nurses' fees, uh, you know, from agency nurses' fees, and, and it wasn't in the legislation. So, um I'm I'm skeptical about whether the hospitals themselves can enforce that. If they, you know, I I think like David, that's sort of um, you know, you know, it, it's it's sort of a labor issue that that I think the courts wouldn't look kindly on if, uh, you know, I if, totally disagree. Unless there was they're a law purchasing a service which is a, a totally private service, and it's like anything else. If you don't like the price of something, you say sorry. I am not paying more than why. Mm -hmm. But then, yeah. But then you wouldn't you wouldn't get your nurses that night, you know, or or that. Um, well, I I I'm going to ask a hospital CEO. Yeah. I think no, they I'd are perfectly the capable yeah. of doing that. And apparently, I didn't know this. There's even a company that negotiates all kinds of stuff for them, and I'm sure this is part of it. And if you're being gouged, uh, I think there there is there's stuff you can do. Right. But the link between the word nurse and gouge is a well, emotional one. Agency, agency, know, private but an agency, agency of nurses. You know. Uh, let, let us uh, let us turn to uh, uh, a different, I would say, a lighter question. Um, and so there's been a huge amount of response to the firing of the CTV anchor Lisa Laflamme. She is an excellent journalist. It, it, the, the company's been accused of sexism, of ageism, probably both. I think that there were probably a lot of issues of her pushing back against the executives. Simple as that. Uh, and there was one, uh, or there's one aspect of it, is how much did her going gray have to do with it and apparently the guy that fired her when she went gray sort of said 
who allowed her to do that? And, you know, that's that's not unusual. It's the kind of thing where, you know, I spent most of my career in television where if you're going to do something drastic like that, especially if you're an anchor and not just one of the stable of reporters, you would probably talk to uh, your bosses about it. And perhaps she didn't or her boss at the time was a woman. So, you know, I would don't think that that in itself could have precipitated it, but it's probably one of a number of things. I don't know. What do you think, David? Well, we don't know what went on in the back rooms. There's been enough leaking and talking and unnamed sourcing to say that it was an issue for the executive that uh, finally um, showed her the door. And if that's the case, and you look at the many male uh, on-air presenters and anchors they've had that had gray hair, you've got ageism and sexism rolled up into one one package, which is very toxic for Bell Media. And they've announced an internal review of all this thing. So nobody's looking good there except perhaps her. Um, well, I, I mean, you know, it's, 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 and it's, it's tough. It's a very uh, bad the, situation for them. They've announced a newsroom review. Yeah. Yeah. If if they're going to find those things, not in the newsroom, it's yeah. going to be in the executive of course, suite. Of I am sorry. So I think they're looking in the wrong place. And it's kind of a knee whenever there's any kind of crisis, they say we're going to call in an outside person to conduct a review. But they're so, leaving themselves open for an even bigger disaster. Because can you imagine the headline? Yeah, we had a review. Nothing. Everything's fine. Everything. I don't think people they're will have forgotten by then Maybe. and moved on, I Maybe. think. Peter? Peter? Lloyd Robertson was gray for years. Yeah. yeah like, years. like he and, uh, and some, of the, some of the hosts since have been. Um, I, I, I question whether that, that is a, an issue. He may have said it in a, in a boardroom meeting, like just questioning it. Like, like as you say, Libby, the, like everything is questioned in a, in a, in a media boardroom, like, especially with, with CTV News being number one, I think it is, right? So, so everything is looked at. He may have said it. Um, whether that led to her firing, it, like that's pure speculation, and I, and I think people have been running with that speculation and, and sort of, you know, making that the story before it actually is a story, you know? So uh, I, I would be slow to say that her gray hair was the reason for her firing. I would say it's more to do with her um, the issues within the newsroom um, that seemed to be in so, I mean she was offered jobs elsewhere in the company and she did, she declined them um, I, I, I not I, Lisa that would be Lisa's producer yes yeah Lisa was not offered other jobs I and, think she was I think she was offered other jobs as well in the company like like Lloyd was after he was like oh like after he retired he became w5 I think or something like that so um, anyway, I, I think we'll have to wait till the story comes out. But it, but certainly her gray hair looked it looked great. Yeah. Know? Like no one no one ever complained about her gray. So I don't think that's the issue. I think I think we're making we're we're sort of you know we're we're throwing that around as a possibility, and it seems like something. But uh, but I really don't think that's the issue. I, I think there were internal issues. Well, that, I think it's more that she pushed back. Uh, the the executives running news now are not news people. And right. uh, they have corporate agendas, and she pushed back. Yeah. 
And I think uh, they want someone more compliant and also want to send a message that you better toe the company line. And in terms of the gray hair, I've read some very silly things online saying she grew out the gray. Well, one day she was salt and pepper. The next day she was gray. I would venture that probably both of those had some help from a hairdresser because they were fabulous. And she has fabulous hair. I'm quite jealous. But uh, I think you're right. The gray hair looked fantastic. It looks great against her skin tone. I mean, well, that's it. The larger issue is gray and embracing gray. And we had, you know, Andy McDowell, who uh, at at Cannes Film Festival, you have Helen uh, Mirren, Helen Mirren. Yeah. So I like this whole thing that it becomes this, you better not, that better not be the reason. So in other words, the, the specifics of Lisa Laflamme's case as a labor case or a firing case is one thing, but the trend of I can do this and um, you can't really sanction me for doing this, I think is a very positive thing in that sense. And and just as a fashion thing, and I I... I Forgive you guys for not being totally on top of this, but uh, the gray trend started as something that 20-somethings were doing. They were dyeing their hair gray. Gray, It's also a fashion thing. And out of the three of you, I think the only one who is actually gray is, uh, is you, Bill, right? That, that, that's right, and I've been I've been gray for a long time, so I guess it's a good time. On good thing I'm mostly on radio and <laughs> not as much on, on TV. But you know, I think you know from from you know I look at it as a part of my background in the in the human resources business. What a classic HR blunder this huge company made. Anybody else doing something like this, thinking about it, first of all, would have made made sure that they had the best advice on how to, how to do it and how to handle uh, if if they if they had to and uh, secondly they would have provided much more uh, support it was obvious that that this was going to be compared to when Lloyd Robertson uh, left and the way he was uh, at the age of 77 no less yeah yeah but still uh, if you're going to make a move like this, you've got to be uh, ready for some uh, crisis management, and they obviously weren't. And and now they're scrambling. And it, uh, it it's amazing to me that a large, successful company like that could make such a a, a basic blunder. Mm-mm, it's not amazing to me at all when you look at Bell Media's track record, and I think the fact that she was being replaced by uh, a, a man, uh, a, a brown-skinned man, I thought. I think they thought that has them covered in some and way. And, and, and he's and a great they, they reporter. Don't understand yeah. I have the viewers. They, they don't understand what viewers really care about. Well, and, and what is she? She's 58 or 59? 58. 59, 58, yeah. yeah. So Lord Robertson, as you said, was 77. Yeah. So... <laughs> Yeah, again, no, 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 not a good look any way you look at it. It's not it's not a good look and um yeah. It's not a good look. No. Well, I'm more. looking at the time. It's not a good look. We're out of time. <laughs> Let's go around. Uh David, what are you looking at for the coming week? Well, I think we're going to see some more uh fallout from the healthcare thing. They're going to have to define uh, some of these loose ends and we are certainly I think at Carp Bill can speak to that. We're going to be asking the question that you did, you know, why why couldn't you just do this anyway and how does this all fit in with everything else that's going on? I think the controversy is just starting. Bill? 
Yeah, I th- David, David's right. And there were some other parts of the report and the plan that we really haven't looked closely at uh, yet. Uh, the one that allows paramedics to send uh, patients to places other than the AR, ER, depending on the, the, the need. There's a number of other smaller details that might end up having more impact on more people than the 300 people this one's going to affect. Peter. Yeah, the the system is at ultra capacity. We're going to see more and more of these measures coming out, um, and many of them will affect uh, older people because older people make up a huge component of uh, hospital beds. So um, this is just the first measure. We're, we're going to see more. Okay. Thank you for that, guys. We will be talking again soon, as always. Thank you, David Kravitz, Peter Mugridge, and Bill Van Gorder. Thanks, Thanks Libby. Libby. Bye, everyone. Thanks, Libby. Okay, we are taking a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about one of those health care measures that is being well-received, and that is expanding the scope of paramedics. We'll talk about that when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. And now to a health care measure that is being received positively. The Ford government is going to expand its program to allow paramedics to take patients to places other than the ER, and that would include a mental health facility, and it would also allow them to treat patients on site. Often, that would be at home, and that would be in an effort to alleviate the pressures on hospitals as they face staffing shortages. Now, This was a pilot program, and it was actually launched in 2020 with over 40 municipalities taking part. According to the statistics, patients received access to care 17 times more quickly, and 94% of patients didn't have to get additional treatment in the ER in the days that followed. Meanwhile, a study out of McMaster University reveals that ambulance usage in Ontario has far exceeded the rate of population growth. So what do you think of this? The numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Mike Merriman, the paramedic and EMS chair for QP Local 416. Hi, Mike. Hi, Libby. Good afternoon. Always a pleasure. Okay, so how? Uh, what, what do you make of this? Um, I... Uh I'm I'm entirely supportive of uh, any uh, initiatives that take the pressures off the system. But, uh, again, as you mentioned, these will alleviate some of the pressures, potentially leave some of the pressures off of the hospital ERs, but they're obviously not going to leave the uh, alleviate the pressures on the paramedics who are extremely understaffed. And, you know, to facilitate any of these programs, like community paramedicine, you actually have to take paramedics out of the 911 uh, pool, to service those calls and you know medics can uh, are barely keeping their head above water now and uh, and burning out in droves so you know again this this and i've said this for decades libby um and you know you know there's times where you like to build a piece say to people i told you so and you relish that well and then there's times where you, you don't relish saying that well this is more the latter because 
I've been saying this for decades. You know, okay, Mike, had- but let's let's talk about this program. Now, uh, my understanding is that uh, you know a lot of nine one one ambulance calls mm-hmm. are because people cannot get access to other parts of the system, and you get a paramedic, and if they stabilize people at home or they can treat them at home, mm-hmm. um, isn't that a good thing? That is a good thing. We're actually doing that now. I mean, the study mentions, uh, or I believe the minister mentioned epileptics and diabetics. We actually do that now. I mean, we've been doing that for quite a few years. We can treat them on scene, and if they don't want to go to the hospital, we're quite comfortable usually with leaving them on scene because we stabilize their blood sugar. If they're an epileptic, they have a seizure. They don't want to go to the hospital. Once we make sure they're okay, they usually don't want to go to the hospital because they know they have a seizure disorder and the hospital really isn't going to do anything for them. So, you know, that's nothing new. We've been doing that for, you know, years and years. Um, no, I'm at, like I said, I'm actually supportive of it, but it doesn't do anything to alleviate the amount of calls that paramedics are actually doing. And paramedics cannot handle the call volume as it is. And again, we're back to staffing. But for what this may do to help alleviate pressures on the hospital ERs, yes, you know, I would agree. But you still need the paramedics. I mean, we recently, Libby, took, expanded a bit of an expansion on our community paramedicine program. But, you know, that meant, which I, which again, I'm entirely supportive of, but that took paramedics off the road to service 911 calls. And what, what they divert by doing community paramedicine for the 911 calls has been a very, very, very small portion of calls. Let me ask you this, because one of the things uh, that I gather was a big, huge is a big, huge bottleneck for paramedics. That I, it seems that this program might alleviate somewhat, and that is, if uh, when a paramedic takes someone to an ER, they have to wait with them until a nurse sees them. And my understanding is that this uh, takes the pressure off that, because if they're sitting there for hours, that takes them off the road as well. I agree. It may it, it very may well help alleviate some of the pressures on that's called the offload delay, where, you know, we don't have a bed for uh, to transfer our patient to and get back out on the road. But you know, there's been a lot of emphasis put on that lately, that that's a real problem in the system. And it's, it's really... Um, for some jurisdictions, it sounds like it is. Like Ottawa sounds quite bad, and I'm not sure why they're worse than Toronto. That may be a case of they have less hospitals to go to and maybe even less paramedics. But Toronto is not all that bad for offload delay. It's We average about a 45-minute wait right now, which is, is down from decades, uh, not decades, but years ago, we could be in there for, you know, for an entire shift waiting on a bed. So, you know... In that respect, offload delay has actually improved. And I I wouldn't have those numbers, Libby, to crunch if, you know, obviously if every paramedic could go in there and get offloaded and get back out the road in 10 minutes, 20 minutes, that's, you know, it's going to help with the system. But there's, you know, there's always still paperwork to do and 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 cleanup of ambulances and stuff. I, do, I really don't think if even if offload was corrected, tomorrow, which it's certainly not going to be, that you're going to see a drastic improvement in ambulance response times. Because again, there's just not enough staff to keep up with the growth. I mean, I think there's that CBC study by Ryan Strum uh, cited a 38.3% growth in call volume in the past 10 years. 
with 26.2% of them we actually end up transporting. And if, you know, you haven't had a massive growth in paramedics out there to service those calls in the past 10 years. In fact, we went a 10-year period approximately 15 years ago. We went a 10-year period where our our call volume increased 4.5% a year on average, and we had no new hires over and above attrition for 10 years. So you're into 45% growth in call volume there with the same amount of medics trying to handle that. And there's been minimal hires just uh, since that time period. Okay, let's so. uh, let's take a couple of calls because people have questions and comments. Okay, let's yeah. begin with Nick in Toronto. Hi, Nick. Hi, how are you? Fine. How are you? Go ahead. You're I'm on the fine. air. Uh, thank you. Um, I think the gentleman that you just spoke to has uh, addressed two separate issues here, um, and he spent quite a bit of time talking about the, the number of paramedics we have, and I don't think that's the issue at at hand. Not for this conversation anyway. You're talking about people walking, uh, paramedics treating people on site, which I think is a great idea. Um, I think in the past, all paramedics that were called had to take a person to the hospital to be treated. I think they they had to unless the person said they didn't want to go. Well, yes, that's true. Okay. That's true. So, that, that, so th- this gives them, I think, more leeway maybe to decide on their own. Uh, Definitely. This, yeah, and, uh, and, 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 uh, and yeah, Mike is saying that it's a good thing, but he thinks uh, he 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 wants more paramedics, and he's trying to uh, tell us about that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, um, I think that's the difference, that before it had to be the patient who said, uh, no way am I going to the hospital, as opposed to a determination from the paramedic. And the increase is you can't get in to see your family doctor if you have one. And if you go to emerge on your own versus with a paramedic, you'll be there for a very, very long time. Right. So this definitely could alleviate that. And sometimes people don't know. I mean, you can uh, confuse a panic attack, for instance, with a heart attack. And uh, Mm -hmm. people don't know. They're afraid, especially if they're older and alone. Uh, Nick? And and that's why the paramedics should be able to, I don't know, do whatever tests they have to do on site with these people and say, no, you're not having a heart attack. You've got a panic attack. Here's what you could, how you can manage it. I guess my my whole point is, I think these paramedics have to be allowed to treat people at home or wherever they may be. And, and they not- are now. So that's good news, Nick. Thanks for your Correct. call. Let's take a call from Jerry in Scarborough. Hi, Jerry. Hi, Hibby. I'm listening to what's going on, and I agree with the par- paramedics should be able to do that. But one one frightening thought that comes to my mind, we had a friend's daughter who had a heart condition. She was 21. She was at the car- cardiologist in the early afternoon, totally examined everything. He said she was fine. Her parents took her out for dinner and went to the theater to see a movie. And right there in the, in the lobby, she had a heart attack and she died in the theater lobby. Oh, my God. Now, how awful. What's to prevent something like that happening with a paramedic, what protection do they have against libel should they treat somebody, leave, and that person succumb after they've gone? 
Okay, thanks. I, I will ask Mike, and it's not libel, obviously, but uh, I'm assuming that uh, paramedics are protected. I, well, I'm not sure if I'm answering the question there, uh, Libby, but to Nick and Jerry, well, to Nick, we actually do have that diagnostic capability when he was talking about heart attacks versus anxiety attacks. We can tell on a cardiac monitor whether somebody's in normal sinus rhythm, whether they're you know, in a arrhythmia, you know, if they are having a heart attack, we have what's called a 12-lead cardiac monitor, and we can determine that on scene. And yes, if, and I've done that myself. It's like, you know, you, your boyfriend just broke up with you. You're not having a heart attack. You're anxious. And we we can rule that out. And to Jerry's point, um, I don't know how to answer that. I'm sure the paramedics probably ruled that out in the same fashion. And But, you know, then later on, this person actually did have a heart attack, but paramedics never refused to take a patient to the hospital. If the patient did want to go to the hospital, then we would have taken the patient to the hospital for follow-up. So, I mean, that's about all I can say on that one. Uh, but if, uh, I mean, do paramedics have uh, protection against malpractice or something like that? Yes, we do have, yes, we do have malpractice, malpractice insurance. Uh, so, Mike, I'm looking. We are out of time for this segment. Last 20 seconds. What would you like to leave us with? Um, I just, uh, you know, I quickly, um, again, got to keep up with the growth. I live out in Durham, a new subdivision up in North Oshawa, all being built. That area is really developed. I noticed a nice new fire hall up there, but no ambulance stations. And that's great. There's a fire hall up there. There should be. But the same emphasis has to be put on for protecting human life as there is on protecting property. You know, firefighters are obviously considered part of the infrastructure, but it doesn't seem to be the same for paramedics. And, uh, you know, I think the public should be gravely concerned and demand out of their politicians that, uh, you know, that there's enough paramedics out there to keep up with the growth. Okay. Thanks so much, Mike Merriman. Appreciate your time. Always a pleasure, Libby. Thank you, and have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're taking another break. When we come back, okay, we've had a lot of really hot and muggy weather. And should air conditioning be a right for tenants? We keep hearing about tenants, particularly lower income tenants, who are penalized if they try even to put a window air conditioner in their units. We'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are experiencing more heat waves than ever, and vulnerable populations are most likely to suffer the consequences. The Ontario Human Rights Commission is calling on the Ford government to make air conditioning a vital service in order to protect vulnerable residents like the elderly and immunocompromised and to protect them from threats of eviction by landlords for AC usage or installation. What do you think? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And it is kind of hard to fathom, but people can be evicted if they 
put an air conditioning unit in and it is going to cost the landlord more money if they pay for utilities. Uh, so right now, let's go to Toronto Councillor Paula Fletcher, Ward 14, Toronto Danforth. Hi, Paula. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Uh, this issue comes up every year and it seems that nothing is really done about it. It does seem to come up every year and this year, uh, again, we're dealing with this down in Parkdale where we're told, take it out. Um, we're not paying for it. A couple of years ago, MPP Tavins and myself, we sent letters to the major owners of buildings saying, hold on, hold on. You can't evict somebody if they, if, if they don't remove their air conditioner. This is just a, a standard that we, we can't fool around with. People need to be cool in these extremely hot days. And uh, what is the holdup? Well, I think that there is no, uh, while you have to have a certain amount of heat in the winter, there's nothing that says you can't go over 26 degrees, let's say, inside a place in the summer. So people are living in conditions where they might be at 26, they might be at 30, they might be higher than that in their apartments. And um, they're afraid to have an air conditioner. They're afraid to turn on their air conditioner. And somehow, I don't think that the kind of legislation that's required from the provincial government in these times of climate change has caught up with the fact that we are deep into climate change living. Well, yeah, so it would be a provincial regulation similar to the one we have for winter? Yes, they would have to do that. Um, and they would have to make it possible to make sure that everybody could have a certain standard of coolness during summer. I don't know. I'm sure you've been following it. Uh, in China, in Sichuan province, they've turned down, uh, turned off all the electricity to all of the businesses in the factories for a whole week because of the heat and the drought, just so people can run their air conditioners and uh, the local population, the residents can. So we are just in a very, very different place than we were 20 years ago when it comes to heat and climate. Uh, will legislation even solve it? I mean, there is actually a law that says that nursing homes have to be air-conditioned, and while most of them have complied, there are still 79 which have not complied, and uh, there doesn't seem to be a consequence. I think that's that's really unfortunate. Isn't it terrible when you think of what the elderly have gone through in nursing homes and those who've made it through the pandemic, and now they're baking in in the place where they're supposed to be living comfortably. If there is central air conditioning, of which most buildings don't, most apartment buildings don't actually have that. They were built long before we had central air. I think tenants are a little nervous because they keep getting threatened and told, you know, turn that off or you're not allowed to have that or we're taking that away or we're evicting you. Imagine getting a threat to be evicted just because uh, your apartment's over 30 degrees and you're trying to stay cool. There's something wrong. Uh, it is season-specific, summer, but it really does have to be dealt with. And I'm glad the Human Rights Commission has stepped in and said, get it together. We need to ensure people can live comfortably in these keep changing time. Well, it, once the Human Rights Commission gets involved, it's usually a very long 
process. I mean, what's the holdup? Uh, are you aware of any government response or lack thereof? I mean, what's the problem here? I think it just hasn't been tackled by the Ford government um, that, you know, the Landlord and Tenant Board and the Residential Tenancies Act, there were so many problems with that during the pandemic. People were being evicted. We have rent evictions. Uh, the Ford government does need to step up as the current provincial government and start looking after tenants and not leaving them at the behest of of landlords that are, aren't taking their best interest in heart. And that's not all landlords. I want to be clear. There's lots of landlords out there that certainly understand if it's 26, 27, 30 degrees in your place, yeah, you need to cool down. What about, uh, you know, what some landlords are obviously saying? You know, we we are collecting a certain amount of rent based on a certain amount of average kind of usage, and, and this puts an undue burden on us. You know, what's really interesting, uh, and I understand what they're saying, is part of climate change, and I did chair a panel when I was uh, Mayor Miller's chair for his climate change panel, that is called adaptation. We have to find ways to adapt to a changing climate. This is one of those planks, Libby. And I think it really it would be great to have capital dollars to retrofit older places, to put in central air, to make them cooler, to do all of those things. And that would be a large uh, program. That would be a climate change program for renters and for landlords that the provincial government could undertake in response to climate change and understand we have to adapt to this new climate. Uh, let's take a quick call from Tony in Etobicoke. Hello, Tony. Yeah, I think it's always been hot. I think 30 years ago, if you'd asked people, they were sweltering. Uh, anyway, indoors in the apartments and also in the winter. I don't understand why. Like, I, I didn't realize there was no maximum temperature uh, in the winter. So you could be in, in a place that's like 78, 80, and you're sweltering. And you go by these older apartments, and people have their windows wide open in January on a cold day. It's so hot inside. Okay. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, And it's true. I mean, uh, we work in an old building here, and with the best of efforts, like the the cooling and the heating is really quite weird. It's hot in some parts of the building and cold in other parts of the building. It's it's, uh, a function that it's kind of an old building, even though, you know, we take good care of it. Yeah, that's where the retrofits come in. And Tony's right, in the winter, if you have centrally heated, which they are, there's one boiler for apartment buildings, and that sometimes is just so hot that people do have to get some relief. But in the summer, when it's so hot, you can't open your window. It's hotter out there. So this notion of retrofitting, it would be great, creates a lot of jobs. It uh, creates better stock for apartments, assist landlords, assist tenants. It would be an, an interesting program and one that is to time has come for um, apartment buildings to get that refresh because we do have to we do have to meet the the challenges of the climate and tony uh feels that it was the same 20 years ago i think that climate change is a little different when we look at the heating of the planet when we look at what's happening with droughts and then flash flooding 
it is quite different than it was a number of years ago. Yeah, and there's also the question of fans. I mean, personally, I way prefer a fan to air conditioning, uh, if at all possible. Fans are good. Fans are good, um, but getting the temperature down or once it gets hot, yeah, and they're just blowing the the, uh, the warm air around. <clears throat> so it's a uh, it's an issue of our time for those renting, and I think the Human Rights Commission has said, you know, this is about the code. The most vulnerable people are basically baking. You're you're baking them. Okay, well, we look forward to them making a ruling and actually doing something about it. And and thank you for being on top of this, Councillor Paula Fletcher. Well, thank you for being on top of this issue, Libby. Okay, bye-bye. Take care, bye-bye. Bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.